Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Utah's first female sheriff, Rosie Rivera, got some good advice when she became an officer. Don't try to be a man. More than a century earlier, Utah's first female deputy sheriff, Claire Ferguson, said to those who doubted her ability to handle danger, why should I fear more than the men? Today we'll broadcast a full episode from This Is Her Place, a podcast that tells the remarkable stories of Utah women past and present in all their diversity. And podcast co-host Naomi Watkins is joining us. Naomi Watkins is an educational leader, women's advocate, and community builder. She's author of Champions of Change, 25 Women Who Made History, a book written with Catherine Kitterman, illustrated by Brooke Smart as part of her work for Better Days 2020. And Naomi Watkins is an expert in teacher education and literacy pedagogy. Received her Ph.D. from University of Utah. Uh, Naomi, uh, thanks for joining us. Good morning. How good, are you? Good morning. It's it's been a while since we talked. It's good to good to hear your voice. Now, happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Uh, so we just wanted to chat just a little bit ahead of this episode. We're going to hear what turned out to be episode one from season one of uh, This Is Her uh, Place. Uh, so maybe reinforce for listeners who aren't familiar with This Is Her Place. What What is it? What are we trying to do with this podcast? So This Is Her Place, we have one season of six episodes about Utah women past and present. So our episodes have a theme, so like the one we're going to listen to today is about um, women in law enforcement. Um, but we take women from the past and women from um, now and t- tell their stories and draw um, themes from common themes from both of their stories because I think there's still a lot of issues that were happening in the past that are still very relevant to now. So for the episode we're going to hear, it's Rosie Rivera, current uh, sheriff of uh, Salt Lake County. And the first, Utah's first female uh, sheriff. There are some other firsts, or almost firsts, right, nationally as well with Rosie Rivera. Uh, and then we pair her with uh, Claire Ferguson. Um, was it you that found Claire Ferguson? I know you've done a lot of research, women from the, from the past. Yeah, when I was working for Better Days 2020, um, a lot of my job was just finding women, right? Um, they're often in the historical record, but not known in our um you know, now. And so I just thought, hmm, I wonder if there were some women in law enforcement in the past and Googled and found Claire Ferguson. But um, Tiffany Green, who is in this episode, um, is, is a historian for Better Days and did the research on her. Um, but I believe it was Meg Rasmussen, our research associate or assistant for season one, who came up with this episode idea and it ended up being very timely. Yeah, very timely. At the, at the time we put it together and aired it, uh, you know, we had the the protests, for example, in the aftermath of the George Floyd killing. Um, so obviously with the uh, the contemporary women, we can talk to them. And I had the privilege of talking with uh, Sheriff Rivera, just an extraordinary woman. Uh, with the women from the past, obviously you got you got to find experts, and so you, you did. Yeah, so, you know, uh, she did the, you know, the primary research on it, looking at newspaper articles. There wasn't a lot about Claire... Um, but enough to really, you know, figure out about what she was doing, who she was. Um, but we also have the luxury often of finding descendants of these women and, you know, or people who knew the women who worked with them. And so that's also a really nice aspect of the podcast is learning these memories from people who knew them firsthand. And we'll talk a bit about this after we hear the episode, but it's always interesting and uh, never failed. They're, they're very strong parallels that we found in each of these episodes. Yes, and I don't know if that's heartening or disheartening sometimes. Yeah, yes, right? like, it's we're true. Still dealing, <laughs> yeah. We're still dealing with these things, um, but 
you know, particularly yesterday, what we celebrated the 125th anniversary of statehood um, for Utah. And uh, it's somewhat heartening to me to know that these women were building and doing things then um, similar to now what they're doing now. Yeah, as you mentioned, some some things are a bit disheartening. We're still dealing with the same problems, but uh, yeah, I appreciate your glass half full comment right there. Um, I'm trying to be positive. There you go. There you go. Very good. Very good. Yeah, and that was uh, quite a celebration last night. Uh, I know here in Cache Valley, fireworks and and such for the 125th anniversary of Stanford. Yeah, I got to see them at the Capitol. It was pretty amazing the most like visually stimulating thing i've done in 10 months yeah right (laughs) yes we're all trying to survive the pandemic uh well naomi uh anything any little nugget that you'd like to especially highlight before we listen to this uh, episode well i mean you mentioned that we were writing this when the protests and after george floyd's killing but i do want to mention we actually recorded the interviews before any of that ever happened um and had started writing the episode when George Floyd was killed and had to totally rewrite it based on, not that these were new things, right? Like black men have been being killed by, you know, for a long time. Um, but suddenly it was thrust into the national news. It was on everybody's mind. It was very, very visual. Um, and rewriting the episode with this new, these new events happening, um, I think made the episode stronger and much more timely. So yeah, certainly, certainly true. I'd forgotten that piece of it. Yeah, but we we started on this even before George Floyd. Well, uh, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to hear this uh, complete uh, episode. Naomi Watkins will join us uh, later in the show following this this episode. So let's hear a break, and uh, then we'll hear this episode from This Is Her Place. By the way, you can find This Is Her Place at thisisherplace.org. More following this break. This is Science by the Slice. When the Human Genome Project was declared complete in 2003, scientists celebrated bits of DNA coded for proteins, but many dismissed the importance of non-coded DNA, terming it as junk DNA. Since that time, the scientific community has acknowledged that those indecipherable genomic sequences aren't junk at all. USU scientists Anna Figgins and Karen Kapheim are exploring the role of small non-coding RNA in bumblebees, which they say may help explain the genetic mechanisms underlying bees' social behavior. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu science. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and uh, we are about to feature a complete episode from the podcast, This Is Her Place. Uh, this is a, a new, uh, new-ish uh, podcast, which uh, tells the remarkable stories of Utah women past and present and all their diversity. And so we're going to hear next an episode on law enforcement. The title is Don't Try to Be a Man, and uh, featuring uh, the current uh, sheriff of uh, Salt Lake County, Rosie Rivera, and Claire Ferguson, who is Utah's first female deputy sheriff. Let's uh, hear this. It's about 35 minutes. The co-host, uh, Naomi Watkins, will rejoin me following this. 
Rosie Rivera started dreaming about becoming a police officer after an incident on a camping trip with her family when she was 16. It was a big camping situation where, you know, a lot of relatives showed up and we had somebody that was in the next camp not following the rules and the police were called. Rosie Rivera's family called the police to deal with their noisy neighbors. But when the police arrived, they weren't as interested in the neighbors. Instead, they turned their attention to Rosie Rivera's large Hispanic family. It was the sheriff's office that came out and, you know, immediately they focused on our campground and my family and we eventually all got kicked out and I told my father back then that that is not right. We were the ones that were having to call the police because these other folks were not following the rules. They were riding their motorbike right through our camp and just some things like that. And. You know, he, he said, if you don't like it, change it. You have to understand that at the time, he could not do anything. And that's what I was having a hard time with, is why would my father not fight back with the police at the time? Why would he not say, this is unfair, but times were different. And he explained that they would take him to jail. So he couldn't say a thing. And I've always, in my mind, thought, if I'm ever a police officer, I'm not going to treat people that way. It's just wrong. Fourteen years later, Rosie Rivera did become a police officer. And today she's sheriff of the Unified Police Department of Greater Salt Lake, the first female sheriff in Utah, and only the second Latina in the country to hold such a position. Her experience as a Hispanic woman gives her a unique view of law enforcement at a time when protests over police brutality have swept the country, including her jurisdiction of Salt Lake County. Today on This Is Her Place, we're talking about two Utah women, each of whom made history in the male-dominated sphere of law enforcement. More than 100 years before Rosie Rivera was named sheriff, a 20-year-old Salt Lake socialite named Claire Ferguson became the first female deputy sheriff in the state's history at a time when the suffrage movement was in full swing. Both women faced skepticism about whether they were fit for the job. Both women proved their skeptics wrong. Ready, Tom? I'm ready. Okay. Welcome to This Is Her Place, the new podcast that tells the remarkable stories of Utah women past and present. I'm Naomi Watkins. And I'm Tom Williams. We'll be introducing you to poets and politicians, artists and activists, healers and homemakers, Compelling women, women who inspire us with the unique ways each of them has truly made Utah her place. We really appreciate you joining us and ask that you subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Today we're talking about female law enforcement officers working in a man's world and the challenges they face. Yeah, talk about a man's world. It doesn't get much more masculine than law enforcement. Law enforcement is, of course, an important topic right now. We've watched these images of excessive use of force by police and the protests in response all across the U.S. Yeah, it's a really interesting time to talk about law enforcement, especially about female police officers. Research shows that female officers are more effective at avoiding violence and diffusing potentially violent situations. But women are only 10 percent of law enforcement officers today. And that hasn't changed in a really long time. Yeah, Naomi, that, that is interesting. 
And we have a lot of resources about the history of women in law enforcement on our website, thisisherplace.org. And you should go check them out if you want to learn more. But I will say here briefly that the first women in law enforcement in the late 1800s and early 1900s were often widows, and they were usually assigned the women's work of law enforcement. Like they were prison matrons or they enforced child labor and welfare laws. It was more like social work. It wasn't until laws about gender discrimination changed in the 1970s that we saw female law enforcement officers doing the same kind of work as the men. In the 1970s, of course, that's when we also start to see TV shows like Charlie's Angels and Cagney and Lacey, which have their own stereotypes about female officers. Yeah, definitely. So let's talk about Claire Ferguson. I understand she was the first female deputy sheriff in Utah in the late 1800s. I'm sure she had to deal with those masculine and feminine stereotypes. Yeah, she sure did. And one of the first things she did was learn to shoot a gun. Before she joined the police force, she had no experience with that. And she trained alongside an all-male task force. And she became quite skilled with the revolver. This might be a kind of a dark and violent tidbit, but I guess in the 1890s, if you were going to be executed by the law, you had the choice of by hanging or by bullet. If you were gonna choose the bullet, you would put a small piece of paper over your heart and then stand at a distance. And the officer had to be able to hit that target. And Claire, there's no evidence that she ever had to do it in real life, but she got very skilled at shooting a small piece of paper from many yards away. Nine out of 10 times she could hit that small piece of paper target. Tiffany Green is a historical research assistant for Better Days 2020, a nonprofit organization dedicated to popularizing Utah women's history. She's done a lot of research on Claire Ferguson, and she's thought about how a 20-year-old girl got appointed deputy sheriff in 1897. It may have had to do with Claire Ferguson's mother, Ellen, who raised her as a single mother after Claire Ferguson's father passed away and was a well-known and respected physician and suffragist in Salt Lake. Claire was probably well-known like her mom. She went with her mom to political speeches. She would perform like musical numbers at suffrage association meetings. So lots of people probably knew Claire in addition or as part, you know, in relationship with her mom. And in the 1890s, Claire starts working for the sheriff's office in Salt Lake as a stenographer. And she works there probably six or seven months as a stenographer. And then Sheriff Lewis, who is the head sheriff, appoints her to be a deputy sheriff. She's not even 21 years old yet. And it's unclear how exactly that appointment came to be. Was it a PR thing because Claire was well-known or more well-known? Her main duties involve serving legal papers and jury summons and transporting female patients to the asylum in Provo. Isn't there a story about her busting up some outlaws? Am I remembering this? It's hard to corroborate and to know for sure. We don't have like firsthand journal accounts or anything like that. But there was one article that talked about how she was invited to join a gang of cattle thieves and rustlers in Utah and go to Robber's Roost, which I think is in like 
central eastern Utah. And so she was invited to be a part of their gang. All you listeners who are fans of Western films will already know that Robber's Roost is the infamous hideout of outlaw Butch Cassidy and his Wild Bunch, located about 50 miles east of Hanksville in southeastern Utah. If Claire Ferguson was invited to join the robbers, she never took them up on their offer. But that's not the only story of Claire Ferguson dealing with outlaws. There's this one story where she was watching a prisoner who was known as Handsome Gray, (laughs) quite a name, and he was handcuffed and somehow he got out of his handcuffs and when the handcuffs fell to the ground, she, he went to, to lunge for her and she immediately grabbed her revolver, pointed it at the prisoner and said, take another move and I'll shoot. And of course the newspaper article again refers to, it was the revolver and her beautiful face that stopped that man in his tracks until some strong, courageous other policeman could come in and apprehend him again. But there were several accounts of things like that, where Claire was able to apprehend lawless men by her revolver and her charming good looks. (laughs) (laughs) She lures them in with her beauty and then... (laughs) Yeah. And and, And again, like, how do you know, you know, it's highly sensationalized, right? Like that was newspapers at the time. That's not uncommon to have that kind of a theme. But it, there's got to be some some shred of truth in that, as well as just showing that she was very capable in her job. This is a theme in the newspaper articles about Claire Ferguson. The idea of a young, beautiful deputy sheriff was irresistible to reporters, which goes to show just how radical it was to have a female in the sheriff's office and just how hard it was for her to be taken seriously in some circles. The newspaper articles always talk about her physical features and they almost like a backhanded compliment. They always say like, she's slight and girlish, far from the commonly accepted idea of a hard shooting Western peace officer. And the articles always refer to her as the girl sheriff, not even like a woman or a female. It's just like the girl, right? Someone who's young and inexperienced. There aren't any photographs of Claire Ferguson, so we don't know exactly what she looked like, but there were drawings in several of the newspaper accounts. It's always just like from the bust up. It's not like a full-figured thing, right? But you can tell that she has a very frilly slash fancy dress on, kind of exposed neck, which seems like it's very feminine and, you know, a really long neck and these beautiful features and this hair that's in this fancy updo with these soft little curly tendrils around her face. She always does look very slight, like they always draw her very slim and the words obviously back up that same description. She looks beautiful. She looks like a a very beautiful young woman in all of the sketches that they drew in the newspaper. It's important to note that newspapers, not just in Utah, but across the country, were printing stories about the, quote, bold girl sheriff from Salt Lake City. What a story to tell their readers about the wild, wild west. The story of Claire Ferguson, as told in the papers, also imposed female stereotypes on her. Listen to this excerpt from an article in the Washington Standard. Those things which this darling young lady may be called upon to do as a matter of business would make the average girl shrink in terror. 
She may have to go out on the trail of fierce brigands and see that they are safely escorted to jail. She may be obliged to use a rifle or revolver now and then to compel the lawbreakers to submit to her will. In fact, the duties of a deputy sheriff are as multifarious as they are dangerous, and Miss Ferguson may be sorry someday that she tackled the situation. The thing is, these newspaper stories are really all we have to go off today to try to understand who Claire Ferguson really was. And there's also some depth there. The Washington Standard article goes on to include a quote from Claire Ferguson that gives a glimpse into her character. Here's Tiffany Green reading what Claire Ferguson said. I know that events may come up at any time which may place me in dangerous places, but I'm willing to take my chances. Why should I fear more than the men? The duties of the sheriff office must be performed, and if a woman has the proper amount of self-reliance and energy, I cannot see why she should not be perfectly able to carry out her orders as well as a man. Around this same time, Claire Ferguson was active in Democratic Party politics, giving political speeches across the Wasatch Front. When William Jennings Bryan, the 1896 Democratic candidate for president, visited Utah in 1897, he asked to meet the famous female sheriff, impressed that Salt Lake was so progressive. We don't know a lot about what happened to Claire Ferguson after her two-year stint as deputy sheriff. We do know from census records that she moved to New York, possibly to live near her sister, who was pursuing a career as an actress, where she married and had two children. One died in infancy, and the other was named after her mother, Ellen. Her husband filed for divorce, citing desertion as the reason. And Claire Ferguson worked again as a stenographer, raising her daughter as a single parent, and eventually married a man she apparently knew for some time. A part of Claire Ferguson's personality that stands out is that she was naturally athletic. She loved riding horses and bicycles and being outside. Activist Susan B. Anthony credited the craze over bicycles in the 1890s with helping pave the way for women's rights by giving women a sense of self-reliance and independence. The song Eliza Jane, published in 1895, describes how bicycling, the desire to vote, and changes to women's clothing all came together right as Claire Ferguson was growing up. This is Emancipation Year, the woman movement's on. Right on. Eliza plans to be a man, tis sad to think upon. She thinks she needs the ballot now, her freedom to enhance. She wants to pose in Papa's clothes, it is for this she pants. There was an article that talked about how she was an enthusiastic wheel woman. So I'm sure she had an outfit that she wore when she rode bikes that wasn't the big fancy dresses because it just wasn't practical to wear a big fancy dress when you're on a bike. Yeah, it's not practical to wear a big fancy dress for most things. Anywhere, probably. <laughs> well, outside of just like hosting teas, I yeah, guess. There's no, like, uh, there's really no bonus to, to wear yeah. that around. There's no advantage of wearing a big dress around. Have you seen Eliza Jane out cycling through the park? Have you seen Eliza Jane? The people all remark. They shout as she rides by the little doggies bark. For we all have a pain when Eliza Jane goes cycling in the park. But the illustrations of her have her in like a traditional skirt and shirt. T- blouse, I guess. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, like floor length, like dragging on the floor kind of a skirt with her revolver I don't know how accurate it was <laughs> yes yes with her with her revolver pointed at handsome gray take another step and I'll shoot so dramatic so dramatic 
The point is that out of the sensationalized newspaper accounts and female stereotypes of the times, if you read between the lines, you see a really nuanced, interesting picture of Claire Ferguson, a woman who both embodied the time period and challenged its norms. Claire was one of those people that just always was able to say what she wanted and to go and get it. And she didn't buy into notions of things that she could or couldn't do. And was very, how do you say it? She was very self-confident, I guess. She never doubted that she had the skills to do things. So Naomi, one of the things that really stood out to me in your telling of Claire Ferguson's story was how the media covered her. And the things they chose to focus on, that says uh, something about what was important in the culture that time. Yeah, for sure. And in a lot of ways, unfortunately, not much has changed. But in other ways, there's been a lot of progress. Law enforcement, as you know, is still a male-dominated profession, but things are getting better for female officers, partly because of women like Rosie Rivera, the sheriff in Salt Lake County, who you mentioned at the top of the show. Let's talk about her. You know, she's mentoring other female officers and making it easier for those who come after her. But Rosie Rivera didn't have it easy, did she? No, it's an extraordinary story. She didn't have it easy at all. Since I was a little girl, I talked about it even when I was seven years old, how I wanted to be a police officer. So I I did see myself there. However, when I turned 14 years old, I ended up getting pregnant and became a young teenage mom. And I felt like, you know, uh, that dream was probably not going to happen. In a Latino community or in our family, if you got pregnant, you got married, and you took care of your family. And so when I did become pregnant at the age of 14, I married my boyfriend at the time. He was just turned 16. You couldn't even get married here in the state of Utah, but you could in Idaho. So our families took us to Idaho we got married, and we, we were married for 21 years. Some of Rosie Rivera's teachers told her she'd be on public assistance and she'd never make it. It was discouraging and confusing to hear adults say they didn't believe in her. But also, it sort of awakened the resilience and determination that are some of her defining characteristics. Almost gave me a determination as well to prove everybody wrong. At 14, when you have people telling you that you can't make it, uh, it does make you want to strive for more and be the best that you can be. And and I've worked that hard my whole life for that. And we couldn't afford a whole lot. We were on public assistance, and we worked in the onion fields to support our family. And at 14, nobody would hire you. I didn't have a driver's license, so it was... A tough time. We did have our families that help. I tried to sell Avon, and there was not one person who would buy any Avon from me. Uh, And looking back, I was just a teeny little thing trying to sell Avon. I can't even imagine what they thought when I went door to door. But that didn't uh, work out so well. But, you know, I picked up other jobs, waiting tables, and mostly it was the onion field. So, that young. Few adults talked to Rosie Rivera about her future outside of taking care of her child. Her father was an exception. A former Marine who worked at Hill Air Force Base, 
He was strict and raised his children as if they were Marines, but he also taught them to care about others and work toward goals. My father had always told me, never give up, keep trying. As long as you try, things will happen. And, you know, he was right. And I had him for a long time just pushing me to just continue trying. And it all worked out. (laughs) Rosie Rivera eventually entered the police academy at the age of 30. And after working her way through the ranks for nearly three decades, today she's the sheriff of the Unified Police Department of Greater Salt Lake. She's Utah's first female sheriff and only the second Latina in the country to have such a position. Here are a few numbers that put Rosie Rivera's career in perspective. When she finally enrolled in the police academy, she was one of five women in her class of 30. When she graduated, she was hired as the only woman in a department of about 10 people at Weber State University. When she joined the Salt Lake County Police Department in 1993, she was one of nine women out of 300 deputies. It was still optional at that time for female officers to wear skirts. I can't imagine doing this job in a skirt, Rivera told Catalyst Magazine, saying that she respectfully declined that uniform option. The pressure on female officers to prove they can do the job is intense. But early on, Rosie Rivera got some counterintuitive advice that she still uses to this day. Don't try to be a man. And that was from one of my first sergeants. He just told me, do not try and be a man, because at the time there were female who would come into the profession, immediately cut their hair short, go on calls and try and be the tough guy. And you can't do that, especially being a female and, you know, I know that women can communicate very well, especially in in stressful situations. And that's what I did is I learned to use my voice versus trying to be strong and have an ego and be like a man. And it's worked throughout my career. That advice stayed with Rosie Rivera through a lot of, let's just call it what it is, workplace sexism. Like countless women in other fields, she recalls sitting in meetings, sharing an idea, and having it ignored, only to have a man suggest the same idea 10 minutes later and get an enthusiastic response. Now that Rosie Rivera is the sheriff, she said people seem to listen to her more. The 28 other sheriffs in Utah have been extremely supportive, even naming her Lawman of the Year last year. And yes, the award is still called Lawman of the Year, even after it was awarded to a woman. Rosie Rivera thinks that sheriffs are more accepting of her than police chiefs were in the past because sheriffs are elected, so they don't compete with each other in the same way. Rosie Rivera worked her way up to serving as the county's first woman on the Metro Gang Unit, then to a supervisor and public information officer. Along the way, she carved out a place for herself by following that advice to not try to be a man. I actually met a gang member who was very, very young. And they had a child, too. And that helped me start thinking, okay, what can I contribute to this gang unit? Uh, I am the only female. And what I started doing was mentoring female gang members. And I still do to this day. I've done it for over 20 years, mentor female gang members and try and help them get out of the gang. Nobody else really took an interest in the female gang members until we had a violent crime involving a female gang member. Then kind of everybody started paying attention 
And by then, I was way versed in what was going on and been able to help uh, not only law enforcement, but also young women who choose that path in life. Like Claire Ferguson, Rosie Rivera is sometimes judged by her appearance. At five foot three, she doesn't cut an imposing figure. But that shouldn't fool anyone, said one of her mentors, Aaron Kennard, executive director of the Utah Sheriff's Association to the Salt Lake Tribune. Rosie Rivera holds a black belt in Taekwondo and has studied it since she was a kid, something she says helped her with more than physical strength. I do believe that taking classes in Taekwondo helped me throughout my entire life. Number one, the discipline, the patience, and then the dedication, because they do teach you all of that early on, and and it stayed with me. Those who react so quickly, I call it the knee-jerk reaction. That's where we make mistakes. So if we have some patience, we think things out, we're thoughtful about our decision-making, we can be much better. I don't come off as being tough. And sometimes people think my silence is I'm shy, but it's really I'm just evaluating the whole situation. And I did that for years. I sat at the table as when I made rank from sergeant, lieutenant to captain or to chief and then sheriff. For the longest time, I sat at the table with a group of men who made all the decisions and I was quiet because I knew then you kind of know your place at the time but it really helped me out later because I had been listening all along and it's helped me out and now that I'm sheriff I have this voice and I make sure that it's heard. Now that Rivera is a mentor to young officers she has some advice of her own for them. You have to be kind. Being a police officer is not about bossing people around and using force. It's about communicating with people, educating people, and you have to have a kind heart because some folks that we deal with, we don't know where they came from. We don't know their stories, and you just have to show that compassion and empathy for them if you want to be successful. And I've seen many people that are successful in law enforcement, but they all have those same qualities. Say you're dealing with a violent gang member or a homicide suspect. That's a lot of pressure. But at the same time, you have to know how to communicate. And I tell you, I worked in the Metro Gang Unit for five years with some very violent gang members. I found that if you treat them with respect, they will treat you right back with respect. The second you disrespect people, that escalates. The tension between kindness and toughness plays into gender stereotypes. Men are tough, women are kind. Therefore, the thinking goes, perhaps men are better suited to law enforcement. Rosie Rivera rejects that kind of black and white thinking. When I first came into the profession, that's all I ever heard is, you know, us guys, we're tough, we're tough, and we will call you when we need you to come and communicate or be nice to somebody. We'll call you up, and you can come out of your patrol car and help. But it's changed now. And now women, women can be tough because I guarantee you I'm tough. And I know <laughs> how to be tough because I've had to because of everything I've gone through my entire life. But I also know being tough doesn't mean that you don't treat people without 
you know, you have to treat people with respect, even if you are tough. And that's how we're changing the perception of what a law enforcement officer is today versus years ago, uh, because females are coming into the profession and we are showing that you can have compassion and empathy for people, but you can still do the job and you can still be tough when you do that job, but you don't have to disrespect people at the same time. Battling gender stereotypes was also a big reason Rosie Rivera and nine other women formed the Utah Women in Law Enforcement Association in 2009. She said it's a way to motivate, mentor, and train each other instead of simply complaining to each other about inequities. There are now around 200 members, and most of the board consists of women who have helped each other rise through the ranks to become lieutenants, captains, and chiefs. So do you think things have changed? Oh, yes, I I do. I think it has changed a lot in the sense that you don't see women coming in to law enforcement to try to be just like the guys. They're coming in and they have a goal and they know what they want already and they know they can do it now. When I first started, it was very difficult to even get into a detective job or any of the specialty jobs. But now, you know, women have been able to prove that they can do the job well, and they are very good communicators. So when you look at detective units, there's usually going to be females in there as well. Uh, Women typically were always encouraged to be the domestic violence detective or, you know, working with the kids, maybe at a school. And now some of the top detectives in law enforcement homicide unit are female. And when I first started, we still had a deputy who wore a skirt to work every day. So it's a little bit different now. And it isn't just women who look up to Sheriff Rivera. There's not a lot of leaders of people of color at all in the state of Utah. And I think having somebody you know, sitting at the table with everybody else or being in the media, making those decisions at a high level. Other people see that and that encourages them that they can do the same thing. They can follow their dreams or their goals. I've had several people reach out to me since I've been sheriff and either say thank you or I saw this and I know I can do it. Hey, you were a young mom. So am I. And they can relate. And one thing that we have seen is when we hire, we do have more minorities applying. And that is helpful to have a mix of people who work for you with several different talents and coming from several different backgrounds and ethnicities because it's important. That's who our community is. And if we all look like our community, we can relate better and communicate better and, you know, solve problems together. When we interviewed Rosie Rivera back in May, her biggest challenge was COVID-19. Her officers were responding to more domestic violence cases and neighbor disputes. And she worried about employees who tested positive and were hospitalized as a result of being out in a public-facing role. I've been a mom, so I, I'm kind of a mom as a sheriff, too and I really care about my people. We are first responders and we have to do this job. We have to be out there. And you know, that's just the chance you take when you go into law enforcement. A mom as sheriff. 
It's just one more example of how leaning into our identity as a woman and not trying to be a man is making Rosie Rivera a unique, successful, and history-making sheriff. So that's Rosie Rivera. One of the biggest things, Naomi, I took away from the whole interview with her was this idea of stereotypes for men and women, especially when it comes to things like toughness and kindness and respect, and how she rejects those stereotypes by integrating all those qualities. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's really the big question for law enforcement right now. The profession is being forced to look at how it thinks about toughness and respect, what works and what has been a total disaster in policing. So when she says being tough doesn't mean that you don't treat people with respect, she's really working to change that perception of what a law enforcement officer is today by bringing compassion and empathy to this job. And that's really, really huge. I don't think you can overstate what it means to have a female Latinx sheriff right now and how important her impact is at this moment in time. So here's something Rosie Rivera said to KUAR back on June 1st. That's right after the protests in Salt Lake City. So this is Rosie Rivera. We all need to come to the table and have more conversation. There still is racism here, even in Salt Lake. And once we all agree that it exists then we can start moving forward on trying to figure out a way to stop it. Because we're law enforcement, because we're the ones that have to keep the peace, we need to be at the table and leading those conversations. The lack of trust that the community has for law enforcement, we have to earn that trust back for us to be able to change things. I really do hope that Rosie Rivera's vision for law enforcement comes true. Yeah, me too. We'd like to thank today's guests and thank you for joining us on This Is Her Place. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please take a minute to rate and subscribe to the show so you'll never miss out on future episodes. To find out more about the amazing women mentioned on today's episode, visit our website at www.thisisherplace.org. While you're there, subscribe to our newsletter for a ton of insider content. This Is Her Place relies on listener support If you'd like to play a part in the creation of future episodes, please click the Donate tab on our website to contribute. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at This Is Her Place Podcast and at Twitter handle This Is Her Place. Questions? Comments? We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at thisisherplace at gmail.com and perhaps we'll discuss your thoughts on a future episode. This Is Her Place is made possible through the generous support of Janet Dana Stowell, Gary Anderson, the Year of the Women Initiative at Utah State University, and the Arrington Chair of Mormon History and Culture at USU. This episode was written by Allison Pond, Naomi Watkins, and me, Tom Williams. Our executive producer is Patrick Mason. This is Her Place is produced by Allison Pond with research assistance provided by Meg Rasmussen and editing by Dorothy Abrams. This podcast was recorded on Goshu, Navajo, Paiute, Shoshone, and Ute land. Our theme is composed by Lindsay Wheeler, with additional music provided by Blue Dot Sessions and Soundstripe. Eliza Jane, performed and arranged by Rusta Bon. We'll be back again soon with another episode of This Is Her Place. 
You're listening to Access Utah. Today we've featured a complete episode from the podcast, This Is Her Place. By the way, thisisherplace.org is the place to go, and uh, you can get this podcast, uh, subscribe to it uh, anywhere you get your podcasts. We'll take a brief break. We'll be back with uh, podcast co-host Naomi Watkins following this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and utahhumanities.org, improving communities through active engagement with the humanities. Voter turnout this fall was the highest in over a century on both sides. So what will it take to unify the country? This is Brian Lehrer from WNYC. Join me, my guests, and listeners from around the country for a live call-in special, the day Congress counts the electoral votes and the day after Georgia's two Senate runoff elections. America, are we ready to reconcile? Wednesday evening, beginning at 6 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. Hope you enjoyed that episode from This Is Her Place. And we're rejoined now by uh, podcast co-host uh, Naomi Watkins. Naomi, it was, it was very enjoyable listening to the episode again. Uh, you know, s- some things stood out to me. I wonder if anything especially stood out to you on this uh, hearing of the episode. Yeah, it was interesting to listen to it, you know, months later. Um, I just, again, how relevant... these issues still are, and um, thinking about, like, what a novelty Claire Ferguson was, you know, in 1897 as the girl sheriff, and how a lot of those issues were still something that Rosie Rivera faced, but that's changed quite a bit, and I think for the better. And what stood out to me is, I think what always stands out to me, the making of this and listening to it, is the value of different perspectives. Uh, For example, Rosie Rivera's experience of sitting in a room of men, suggesting something, being ignored, a man suggests it later, and is enthusiastically received. As a man, I've not had that experience. But uh, as I talk to friends, listen to to female friends, it's 100%. They've all had that experience. So that that tells me, again, that the value of uh, hearing uh, different voices. Right. And I think, too, her experiences as a girl, you know, watching her, you know, law enforcement um, discriminate against her family and how she takes those personal experiences into her work now. I mean, she's now consulting nationally about police reform, um, and there have been changes here in Utah based on um, what's been happening. And I think, I hope that there are more things that happen due to Rosie's work. Yeah, very, very interesting. Uh, so so the uh, other episodes that we have not heard, by the way, uh, we're going to do this monthly uh, through April. So we have three more episodes from season one. We'll do this in the first week of each month. Uh, got some ep- interesting episodes uh, coming up that uh, people can check out right now or, or you know, wait and listen to them on Access Utah. Um, I guess the, the next one up would uh, be uh, Public Art. Uh, where we profiled uh, muralist uh, from the past, Minerva Teichert, and then a couple of uh, current artists working. Yeah, um, Jan Hollers and Ruby Chacon. And I think the great thing about public art, particularly in a pandemic, is it's something you can still see, right? Because it's usually on a wall of a building um, when a lot of you know other buildings are closed or haven't been safe or you know, exhibits. I've been moved virtually, but it is, I think, compelling to see, like, Jan Haworth's um, Utah Women Mural that was unveiled in August that's in downtown Salt Lake City. Um, 
a nice little thing to do during COVID times. Yeah, right. definitely. I'll just briefly mention a couple of other episodes you can check out. Um, the episode on politics and academia, Bridge Building, Allison Comish-Thorne uh, from Cash Valley and Karen Kwan, representative uh, in, in Salt Lake City area, and uh, Storytelling and History, Betty Sawyer and May Timbimbu uh, Perry. And there's a great episode on public health featuring uh, voices of Angela Dunn, Annie Dodge-Wanika, and Martha Hughes-Cannon. So I'll just mention those. And again, this is herplace.org. Or anywhere you get your podcast, um, just mention those in passing because Naomi, I want to hear about season two. I know you're working on that right now. What kinds of things are we going to hear? Um, yeah, so we finished up recording some interviews about educational equity with Lily Eskelson Garcia, who was the recent um, president of the National Teachers Association, and um, Albert Henry, who was an African American woman. Um, in Salt Lake City, who did a lot of things to build to work on educational equity in the in Salt Lake City, and um, and we're still the the challenge, as you know, Tom, is like trying to decide which of the really cool stories do we feature. Um, we're planning to do an episode on the new um, Lieutenant Governor Deidre Henderson, uh, tie her to Governor Olean Walker, um, but still trying to figure out what we're going to do for season two because. Like I said, there's, it's hard to narrow down which ones do you pick because there's so many really cool women to feature. Yeah, there are, there are so, so many stories. Um, and I hear at the end, um, maybe you can reinforce again for us uh, the, the value of, of looking at this history. Yeah, so I, you know, I'm a Utah transplant from California. I didn't know about anything about Utah history, really, but definitely not about Utah women. Um, and being a transplant here, it's great to learn about the women who helped build the community and the state that I now live in. It helps me have a lot of pride about where I live um, and helps me be motivated to do work in the community. By the way, just to have a minute or two left, uh, you know, this is, for you, this is a side job. I think everybody involved, this is a side job, work of love, right? Um, you're, you're involved yeah. in education right now. What, uh, what things you're working on right now? Well, I work at the Utah State Board of Education, so of course, you know, working with help supporting educators and students during this time of, you know, upheaval um, due to the pandemic and figuring out, you know, how to help students succeed, not just academically, but also um, emotionally and socially. So, yeah, it's an interesting space to be in right now, but also really rewarding. Do you, what, uh, I don't know, Personally, or, or, you know, putting on your professional hat, to it, are, are educational leaders planning that this entire 2021 is going to be an upheaval? Or, or, or I guess we're hoping that things settle back down a little bit sometime this year, right? I hope not. I had a dream last night that I got the vaccine. I was very disappointed when I woke up. But <laughs> I, I think, um, you know, the term new normal, which I don't really necessarily like, but I think things, I think things are once the vaccine is going strong, I think we're going to be seeing some more normalcy, which I think we all will appreciate. Yeah, yeah, we definitely will. Well, Naomi Watkins, thanks again so much. Uh, Naomi Watkins is an educational leader, women's advocate, community builder. Uh, she, she's an expert in teacher education, literacy, pedagogy, and uh, co-host of the podcast, This Is Her Place. You can find that at thisisherplace.org and anywhere you receive your podcasts. Well, Naomi Watkins, thanks uh, so much. 
Good chatting, Tom. Good, good chatting. Yeah, it's, it's nice to hear your voice. <laughs> um, and uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today. Hey, it's Francis Lamb. This week on our show, in honor of the depths of winter, we're all about soup. We talk with Jen Lewis, author of the Chicken Soup Manifesto, to get her tips and recipes from around the world. We taste canned chicken socks to find out which one we like best, and that's all coming up on The Splendid Table. Sundays at noon on Utah Public Radio. Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Next time on Latino USA, we take you to Los Angeles, a city that sits on the largest urban oil field in the country. The story of one young Latina who decides to take on the powerful oil industry. I feel like they don't see me as the threat, but I know that isn't true, and they'll just have to find that out on their own. That's next time on Latino USA. This morning at 11 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. The Utah Governor's Committee on Employment of People with Disabilities and the Department of Workforce Services' Utah State Office of Rehabilitation honored several people and businesses with the 2020 Golden Key Awards. It recognizes those who have helped promote employment opportunities for people with disabilities. One of the 12 recipients was Michael Bingham, founder of Jump the Moon Foundation in Logan, accepting the Educator Provider Award for extending an open door at his art studio to individuals with disabilities, providing those with disabilities to create and explore art for free, and offering positions for them to work.